book lover. I am so glad you are here listening to my award-winning podcast, Thoughts from a Page, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. This show is a passion project for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoy making it. I only interview authors whose books I have read and enjoyed, so if I am chatting with an author on the main show, it means that I really liked their book and feel comfortable recommending it to you. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I work hard to find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations and to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Are you looking for an engaging book community with unique bonus content? If so, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon community, which is filled with a wonderful group of readers. I offer three levels, page turners, lit lovers, and royal readers. And each level provides all sorts of cool bonus book content that you will not find elsewhere. If you're interested or want more information, the link to join is in my show notes. Today, I'm chatting with Greg Glasgow and Catherine Mayer about Disneyland on the Mountain. Greg is a longtime writer and journalist for numerous magazines and newspapers, including the Denver Post and the Boulder Daily Camera, where he worked for 10 years as arts and entertainment reporter and editor. He lives in Colorado with his wife and co-author, Catherine. Catherine is a Denver-based writer and journalist whose work has appeared in numerous publications, including Health, Observer, and Pop Sugar. She primarily writes about business and has appeared on radio, TV, and podcasts as an industry expert. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And And we're we're the the Professional Professional Book Book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading! Welcome, Catherine and Greg. How are you two doing today? Doing great. Thanks so much for having us, Cindy. I'm glad you guys are here. I am a huge Disney fan, as is my family. So this was a really fun read and something I knew absolutely nothing about. Oh, wow. Good. Well, you're the target audience. Yeah. <laughs> Disney people who don't know a lot about the story is the people we're trying, <laughs> trying to reach. Exactly. And I saw on your website that you have made it onto all sorts of Disney pages. So you have reached your goal, it looks like. Yeah, we've really got some nice, you know, we, we, we always figured that this would have appeal for Disney people and Disney fans, because this is one of those stories that a lot of, you know, Disney files have heard some about over the years, but really haven't maybe put all the pieces together that we did in this book. So that was, yeah, kind of the idea, but we have had a lot of good coverage from Disney blogs and stuff so far, which is great. And a really great Publishers Weekly review as well. That had to make you thrilled. It did. We were very, very excited about that. You know, obviously, as longtime writers and readers, of course, and this is our first book. So to have to have a Publishers Weekly, it feels like you know, that's always the, the goal of, of any of any author, right? So we were, we were very, very excited. Exactly. Well, before we dive into my questions, would you give me a quick synopsis of Disneyland on the Mountain for those that haven't read it yet? Yes. Um, so Disneyland on the Mountain, Walt, the environmentalist, and the ski resort that never was, 
tells the story of a ski resort in Mineral King, California, that Walt Disney and the Disney Company attempted to build in the 1960s and 70s. Um, had it started at the 1960 Winter Olympics, in which Walt Disney played a role, um, and it encountered quite a good deal of environmental opposition as it went on. There was actually a lawsuit filed that went all the way to the Supreme Court. And then sort of the aftermath of that and how the resort ultimately ended up not being built and kind of how this whole environmental battle contributed to that. So my first very important question, are you two big Disney fans? So, yes, for the most part, we we are. I especially grew up with, with Disney. I grew up going to the Disney parks, especially Walt Disney World, being from the East Coast and going there you know, with my family and and growing up, just obviously watching the movies, all that kind of stuff. And I got Greg into it as well, where we're a couple were married. And so he kind of leaned into that, of course, as well. And certainly just really interested in the Disney history too, and, and the Disney company as a business. And, and it's just so rich, and especially anything to do with, with kind of just way back when with, with Walt and anything like that. That's really a lot of where interest stems. So this writing, this is really a dream come true, really. Well, how did you learn about the Mineral King aspects? And then how did you decide to write about them? We first learned about Mineral King. I mean, again, as Disney fans, we had heard a bit about it over the years. But we took a trip in 2018 to the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco. And there's a giant timeline there of Walt Disney's life that happened to have a small mention of this ski resort project. And what really got us fascinated was the fact that this mention said that Walt's partner on the project was a guy named Willie Schaeffler, who we knew of because he was a well-known Colorado skier who actually was the head ski coach at the University of Denver for many years. Catherine graduated from the University of Denver, and we actually met when we both worked at that school. So that connection was like, huh, that's really interesting, kind of pricked up our ears on that. And somehow just started, you know, as we're both journalists and both very curious people, started looking more into this story and just realized that it had so many facets to it and this whole environmental side and this battle that went to the Supreme Court. And we just thought it would make a really fascinating Disney history book. And, you know, again, this is this is the first book we've ever written. So it was a you know a big undertaking to try to to do this, but we we started in and and set out to write it. What did your research look like? It was really a combination of things. It was certainly combing through, honestly, thousands of newspaper articles, going through archives, visiting archives throughout the United States, talking to a ton of different people, different reports, meeting minutes, things like that. So it was really, it was really a labor of love and and certainly a lot of different things. And of course, we interviewed a number of people, dozens of people really, to to help us tell this story, people who were involved with this journey and with this story, which was which was a great find considering, you know, it was obviously several years ago now. It started in the early nineteen sixties and ended in the late nineteen seventies, but we were able to to talk to quite a few people. And this is the first book to really cover this topic, correct? There was another book that came out a couple of years ago, right, oh. as we were writing ours, one other book that had to do really with the legal battle, specifically is written by like a legal scholar, which, you know, does a good job of explaining the legal aspects in a very 
legally way. But yeah, as far as telling the whole story, you know, from the Disney side and the environmental side, we were surprised that no one had ever done it. So yeah, this is the first book that really tells that whole story. Well, and what you just touched on is what I was getting ready to mention next. What one of the things that I really loved was how well you put the story in context, both the project within what else was happening in the Disney Corporation, but also within the environmental movement. It really made for such a fascinating tale. I just blew right through it. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. Yeah, it was it was, there were so many interesting things that that had happened, obviously, at this at this point in time, just like you said, just both in terms of where the Disney company was at and also just American history and obviously kind of the the beginnings of the environmental movement, the women's rights movement in the in the 1960s. So a lot of fascinating things were happening at this time for the for the Disney company just to give it a little context of of where we were at. Disneyland was announced in 19 or had opened rather in 1955 and this project, the ski resort that the Disney company was trying to build was in the early to mid 60s and then went on a long, a long time after that, which you can read about, of course, in the book. But so this was really the second experiential destination that the Disney company had tried to create. And at the same time, they were building or starting to plan rather the the Florida project, which then became Walt Disney World. Yeah, Walt was a a big skier and also a real big outdoorsman, conservationist. So he really envisioned this as a year-round recreation destination that of course would have skiing in the wintertime. It would also have, you know, sledding, ice skating, tobogganing, a lot of sports for non-skiers as well. And then in the summertime, they would use the ski lifts to bring people up the mountains to go hiking and there would be wilderness walks and hiking, camping, fishing, all those kinds of things. So he really saw it as a celebration of the natural beauty of this area. There was going to be no cars allowed. There was going to be, um, you know, camouflaging of a lot of the ski lifts and a lot of the parking and things like that to really preserve the natural beauty. And then there's going to be a village area as well with hotels, restaurants, shopping, kind of all the things we think of today as like the modern ski resort. But at that point, wasn't really too common. And that was sort of his, his vision for this year-round project. And he felt that the current ski resorts that were in place at the time weren't very family-friendly. So he was trying to build a place that people could come with their entire families and have other things to do other than just ski. That's exactly right. And so family is obviously a big draw for for any kind of vacation because at the time, ski resorts were really very athletic, as you could imagine. It's very experience people that are putting on their skis and obviously, you know, hitting the slopes and flying down a mountain. So this was something that he was also envisioning. People can put on their skis for the first time here and families could come up here. They could learn how to do this, but experienced skiers can do it as well. And another thing that he was thinking of that people had not thought of at the time was Let's create a destination where, yes, it is a ski resort. People can ski, but it's a lot more than that. And they actually had seen in their research, they thought that even warmer months when people weren't skiing was going to be an even bigger draw for this for this area and destination that they were creating. And they really also wanted to attract non-skiers as well. Well, and like some of the places in Colorado do now, like Breckenridge and places that have summer huge summer draws as well as winter draws. 
Exactly. Yeah. And that was, you know, at the time that really wasn't done as much, if at all. So yeah, this idea of the year round resort that would utilize all the, the ski lifts and all the different things in the summer was a kind of a new idea. And people were going to take a monorail in, isn't that right? They early on looked at a monorail, and it's funny, that's actually how the Sierra Club, which was the big leader of the opposition, first found out the first rumors they heard way back in the early 60s were Disney's looking at building a monorail into the Mineral King area. It was going to go over you know, the sequoia trees and things like that. But they actually abandoned that idea fairly early on just because it would have been very sort of difficult to get that all in place with the tracks and stuff. Although they did look at one point at a rip more of a traditional train to go up to bring people in. They had several different sort of transportation ideas over the years. But yeah, at one point, monorail was certainly on the table. Well, we visited Sequoia National Park several years ago. So I was really trying to put all of that in my mind as to exactly where this was and what happened. And hopefully this isn't a spoiler. But in the end, that was part of the reason that this really hit a hiccup too, because the land butts up to what was then Sequoia and eventually kind of becomes part of Sequoia, correct? That is correct. And it was, it's interesting because there, when they were drawing out the boundaries of Sequoia National Park back in the day, there was debate about if this area in this area, Mineral King should be included in the park. And one of the reasons it wasn't was because there were some existing infrastructure there. There were some cabins and there was a post office and things like that. And it was left over from the area's stint as a, as a mining place and as, as the name might suggest. So there was a lot of people who thought that that area actually always should have been a part of Sequoia National Park. And so that was certainly part of that debate, too, is here's this beautiful area that more or less should be should be a national park area. Let's not let's not ruin it by by putting this, you know, slopes and and have thousands of people visit. It definitely would change the way that area was viewed and how much traffic would be there. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, they one of the big controversies and one of the reasons for the Sierra Club's lawsuit is that the road into the area was so primitive at that point, you know, and still is actually to this day, but it has tons of little switchbacks and curves and parts that are unpaved. And they would, would have really had to build a brand new kind of all-weather highway that would have gone through part of Sequoia National Park sort of by necessity. So that was really one of the big sticking points early on is we don't want to have a new highway through Sequoia National Park. Absolutely. So the other interesting aspect of it was how much Walt himself had impacted how we view the natural world. And that was something, I guess I'm young enough, which I don't say very often, that I realized that the way he created some of his Disney videos and some of the earlier documentaries that he created really brought the natural world to people in their homes. And so that when he was talking about the ski resort, he really did still want to preserve the idea of nature and people being able to see what it was like to be out in nature. So it was kind of interesting. Yeah, he really did. It was, again, this this really felt more or less pretty genuine when we were doing our research. This was something that Walt really wanted to to share with people, he had said multiple times in the in the early years of of when he was trying to get this thing built, he said that it that Mineral King was one of the most beautiful places he had ever seen, and I want to keep it that way. So it was really about putting something there that yes, people could have fun, they could be entertained, but more than that, they could experience 
this area that, you know, it wasn't going to be really accessible to people otherwise, right? I mean, that's always kind of an argument for certain development is to try to make it accessible for people. And you had mentioned some of his early films and and he actually, he did have a series of wildlife documentaries called The True Life Adventures films that he started to create in the late 1940s up until 1960. And he, it was all about educating people and children and adults and everyone who wanted to watch them all about animals and the natural world. And that was extremely important to him. And and you can read more about this in our book, but he had done so much for the conservation movement. And a lot of this was kind of ironic because he had helped contribute to a lot of kids then growing up with his films and becoming environmentalists and conservationists. And then ultimately they, you know, chose they were not a lot of them were not for this project. But that was one of the great ironies of the story. It really does make for such a fascinating and complicated story. And I think that's why it was so interesting. And I'm glad you put it all in context so well. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it was like, it was such a journey of learning about all this stuff. I mean, we didn't know that Walt was such a big environmentalist. We didn't know a lot about the true life adventures or any of this stuff. So finding that all out and yeah, it just, it was just so interesting how everything connected on on both sides. And it was, yeah, it was fun and sort of rewarding to find those connections and write them. And every review I read talks about how balanced your portrayal is. Oh, well, that's, I mean, that was really our goal, honestly, was to really, you know, even chapter by chapter sort of switch points of view and really lay out because really we were the same way. And we, we interview, as Catherine said, a lot of people on both sides and we really see kind of the merits of, of both sides. So it was important to us to keep it very balanced and really show that the motivations were, you know, were true and pure on, on both sides. Exactly. Well, you're married. So what was it like writing a book together? Isn't that the, this is the most important question. Exactly. I was like, forget the rest of it. (laughs) We, I think we keep joking that we're still married. So we did survive. But, you know, I mean, it's been really rewarding in a lot of ways, certainly. I mean, we've worked together in the past. We actually met while working, but, you know, just with the nature of what we do. And because we are both writers and journalists, you know, we've shared work with each other and things like that over the years. And I think we're better off for that. But what's so interesting about this is that when we think of other people who write books together or just writing partners, and we imagine that they have, you know, writing hours, or maybe they're getting on calls, or they're getting together, obviously getting coffee and having special work hours. But being a couple and obviously living in the same household, we kind of lived and breathed this story for so many years. And, you know, it was just ingrained in our lives, whether it was, you know, even when we weren't having quote unquote work hours or we weren't doing our book work at a certain time, we were still talking about the book. We were making dinner and, you know, thought of an idea. We're walking our dog and same thing that sometimes sparked our best ideas, which was really special. What did the actual writing look like? We can't remember. (laughs) (laughs) You blacked it out. We look back and think, how do we do that? But, uh, you know, we really, we sort of would take parts and pieces, you know, I'll work on this chapter, you work on this chapter, or I found this new piece of information I'll try to work in. But a lot of it was just sort of getting down those rough ideas 
And then just sitting and like literally reading the copy to one another and, you know, maybe I'm not sure about that word or trying to polish things as we go and really collaborating on like almost every sentence and really just working it out. It took a long time. Yeah, it really was like pure collaboration all the way through. It's so funny too, is because now, you know, it's been over a year since we finished writing it, but it so we'll look back on it and be like, which one of us wrote this part? <laughs> which one of us wrote this part? What did you do when you had a disagreement about a part? Just defer to Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> Very good answer. <laughs> no, I mean, we always kind of talk through it. And I think kind of keeping it both ways or something like that, and then kind of deciding from there. And, you know, and, and there's so much because the story was so rich and there's there's so much that we were kind of simultaneously working on that sometimes maybe we'd kind of let it sit and then decide later what which argument would would be best I yeah think. it was it was so you know it was so in pieces through a lot of the writing process it was like individual chapters or individual sections that we weren't even sure where they were going to go so it's kind of like as we got closer to finishing the book and putting it all into one big piece, then I mean, some of those things sort of reveal themselves as like, okay, that would actually be the best path, you know, compared to the way the rest of the book is, is starting to read. So. Well, and I find sometimes when I sleep on things like things I've thought were really important. And the next day I think, well, is it that important? So maybe you can also think through it and think, okay, this one is really important to me. I'm going to stick to my guns here. I don't care so much on this one. I'll, I'll let the other one have that one. Oh yeah. I think that's, that's absolutely correct. It always looks different kind of in the light of day or, or, you know, you feel so strongly about something at one point and then later you're like, hmm, you know what, maybe that's not as <laughs> important as we originally thought. Exactly. Well, what surprised you the most when writing Disneyland on the Mountain? You know, we mentioned the stuff about Walt and his conservationism and also just finding out that he was like a skier early on and also finding out, like I mentioned, that he was involved with the 1960 Winter Olympics. He was um, the chairman of pageantry there and was in charge of the opening and closing ceremonies, which sort of at that point looked a little different than they do today. He actually sort of invented what we think of as the modern Olympic opening ceremony. So just all these different pieces of him that I really just was not familiar with. And of course, I would add that just how monumental this battle was and how long it went on for. Again, when we first started researching it, you know, we did it, first of all, we weren't doing it at first for, you know, we're going to write a book about this. We're just kind of doing it out of pure curiosity, seeing what we could find and, you know, realizing that there wasn't really that much out there. But this story where we wrote it in the book, it really starts in 1960 and it ends in 1978. This is an incredible amount of time that the Disney company tried to build this thing and an incredible amount of time that people opposed it. So just the breadth of, of, of that has been absolutely incredible to, to learn about. And then it made it all the way to the Supreme Court. Right. Yeah, that was another surprise. I don't think that's anything that we had ever heard of. And I think I'm trying to remember because the, the, the case, I think, was first heard in like 1971. So when we started, it was like almost a 50 year anniversary of that case as well. So I mean, that was another kind of monumental thing of like, how have we not heard of this Disney involved Supreme Court case? That's actually leading me into my next question. You all are very good at doing that. There were so many fun Disney trivia tidbits. You mentioned that Walt was kind of responsible for the pageantry that we see in Olympic ceremonies today. The other fun tidbit that I loved, because I grew up going to it all the time, 
was the country bear jamboree and how that was something that had been developed for Mineral King and then obviously didn't happen because Mineral King didn't happen. And it ended up at Disney World. I loved learning that. There were so many fun stories. Yeah, we were so surprised to hear about that. I think that's, you know, I think some people who are very into Disney history, they do know that they do know that fact, but but we didn't realize that. So this is very interesting for people who who have gone to the Disney parks and are fans of that because that was, you know, we mentioned that Walt was trying to do something that was really about preserving the the area and 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 having people be aware of it and it was going to be very authentic to the area. However, of course, this is Disney we're talking about, so they they did start to to think, okay, should we do some kind of entertainment value, you know, for people, especially when they're they're done with some of the nature activities for the day and it's nighttime. So what could we do? And they they thought of this idea of they were utilizing a lot of those audio animatronics at the time, and that was pretty new for them. And they were kind of finessing it, and and they thought, you know, bears make sense in the mountains. Let's let's create some singing and dancing dancing bears, and and put them here to entertain our guests. And and later that went to Walt Disney World, and later Disneyland as well. Which, if you kind of laugh and think about, they make a lot more sense there than they really do at Disney World. But I had never thought about exactly, it. Exactly, right? So there was a bear at Disney World recently. I know. I know. <laughs> Who would have known? Yes, exactly. He was trying to visit his relatives. But <laughs> <laughs> he was from Mineral Cane. He finally made his way. <laughs> exactly. Speaking of Disney World, this book is very timely as well because there's a lot going on with Disney World and controversy in Florida right now. So what do you all think about all of that? Yeah, it was really interesting to see all that unfolding right as, you know, the book was sort of being prepared for publication. I mean, I think people maybe think that it's, you know, a new thing for Disney to be involved in like a political battle like that. But as you as you'll read in our book, if you read it, that there, you know, there's a lot of political battles that were involved with this project as well, and I'm sure many other projects that they've done. And I think it was interesting to see in both cases that they, you know, they really sort of stood up eventually for for what they you know believed in as a company what they thought was best for them and for their employees and also for their customers so i think it's you know definitely something that runs in the the disney company pretty strong is just that sense of you know we have to stand up for for what we think is right and that's what they you know did with mineral king and what they're what they've done in florida also it's just really interesting to see that playing out right now and then reading about your controversy as well yeah, it was such a, there was a, you know, there was that connection. There was, this is the 100th anniversary year of Disney in 2023. So we sort of got fortunate in a way that we, that we tied into all these other things that were happening, which is obviously purely by coincidence. Well, I could talk about Disney all day. And obviously it sounds like the two of you all could too, but unfortunately we probably can't do that. So before we wrap up, why don't you tell me some books you've read recently that you really like? Uh, sure. On the fiction side, I just finished the latest um, in Martin Walker's Bruno Chief of Police series, which is set in France. And it's just a really neat mystery series that has a lot of history and a lot of like food and wine. And it's just a very great escape series. Um, nonfiction side, I actually just read a biography of Harry Smith. He was like a underground filmmaker and music archivist and sort of just this all around bohemian guy that was touched the beat generation and the hippies in the 60s and was friends with Allen Ginsberg. And it's just sort of a fascinating story of this kind of lesser known guy in that scene. And I'll mention a couple of nonfiction books. One 
was called Whistleblower, My Journey to Silicon Valley and Fight for Justice at Uber by Susan Fowler. And she was a former employee at Uber and basically a whistleblower about some of the sexual harassment and lots of kind of bad behind the scenes um, things that were happening at the at the company. So she had wrote a memoir about that. I love the intersection of big business and expose and memoir. She did a fantastic job. So I loved that. And another memoir I loved was Crying in H Mart. I'm sure you've Many people have told you this, but I thought that was a, I loved that. That was definitely one of my favorite uh, reads of the year. I've heard that over and over again about crying in H Mart, and I still need to read it. I've lost both my parents in the last couple of years, so I've kind of avoided that one, but I think I'm to the point where I could read it now. Yeah. And I'm a huge fan of Martin Walker. I love that series. I used to work at a crime fiction bookstore here in Houston, and he came to the store regularly, and he is so nice. And I just launched this mystery series series on Instagram where I post about various series and I launched with his because I just love it. It's so well done. Oh, that's so cool. I'll have to check it out. That sounds neat. Are, do you have photos of the area where those take place? or? Oh, no. I just post about each series and I talk about the series, how many books there are, what it's about, you know, whether you can read it out of order, in order, why you should read it, kind of where it falls in the light versus dark, that kind of stuff. Great. I'll take a look. I'll probably get some other good recommendations as well. Yeah, I've been slowly unrolling it. I think I'm only on about number five of the series, but I kind of do it within other posts as well. But it's fun because people really like series. And so it's a good way to highlight some of those that maybe people don't always know about. Though I did just post the Richard Osman, which everybody knows about. <laughs> yeah. So, well, thank you both so much. I absolutely loved your book and I'm so glad we got to chat about it. Oh, that's so kind of you. Thank you so, so much. We're so happy you liked it and hopefully other people like it as well. But but thank you, Cindy, so much for having us here. We're such a joy to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for all your great questions. It was very enjoyable. Absolutely. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts from a Page. If you enjoy the show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts from a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? 
Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Woo! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast.